I have recently finished a book by a pastor who served for several years as a, uh, an award-winning journalist. In fact, on one occasion, he was doing a, a newspaper story on heroin addiction and uh, was asked to profile a girl in their city. Her name was Mickey. Mickey was a 19-year-old heroin addict who sold her body for packets of black tar Mexican heroin, evidently the most addictive narcotic on the planet. John writes that he met Mickey for the first time. She agreed to be interviewed in a series of interviews, and they walked to a fast-food hamburger place nearby where he writes, she sat in the booth shivering and squinting at me through her steel-blue eyes. We talked about life. We talked about her life, a life where she was trapped. She'd grown up in a wealthy family, loved teddy bears as a young girl, and hoped to become a lawyer one day. While in high school, after experimenting with marijuana and cocaine, she tried heroin. Her first time was shooting up in a bathroom stall at a Barnes & Noble. It was the worst drug experience she'd ever had, but the next day, she had to have more. From that moment on, she was enslaved, addicted to this. The past years, he writes, had been tragic. The needle marks on her arms and neck were tragic. Her living conditions were tragic. Her emaciated body and her life were tragic. But the most tragic moment, came toward the end of our series of interviews. Now, as a believer, I had been working behind the scenes to arrange for serious help and intervention. Now, after writing her story, I had found one of the best addiction recovery centers in the state. It was expensive, but they had agreed to take Mickey on for free. That night, all the details had been arranged. Through the course of the interviews... Mickey had often told me how she wanted so desperately to be free from heroin, from her prostitution, from the abusive streets, from the enslavements of her life, and now she had the chance, and I told her what had been arranged. The car was actually waiting there for her at the curb. But to my great sadness and surprise, Mickey chose to keep her life as it was. Unsure of what it might mean, For her to leave everything she knew behind, afraid of what it might mean to start all over and face life without drugs, Mickey said, no. I also read recently of another counselor for teenagers who wrote that these kind of stories don't just live in the ghetto, they're in the neighborhoods. This counselor wrote, a teenage girl from the suburbs, from a nice family in a manicured lawn, came to me, and in our session together, she pulled back her sleeve to show me where she had taken a razor blade and cut into her forearm the word empty. Empty. Both of these women, as I read these stories, believed they were beyond hope, certainly beyond redemption, beyond forgiveness, but they, they weren't, were they? No one is. One of the most uh, dramatic encounters of forgiveness and grace takes place between Jesus, a Pharisee, 
and a prostitute. And as the Lord so often does, he teaches us by contrasting two lives that intersect in the most unexpected circumstances. It takes place in Luke chapter 7, so if you'll turn there. It's going to take place in the lives of an upstanding Pharisee and a notorious prostitute. The word, by the way, empty, fits both of their lives. She effectively has it written on her body. He has it written on his heart. Everybody sees hers. Only Jesus sees his. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, informs us that one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. Now down in verse 40, we learn that the Pharisee's name was Simon. What you need to keep in mind here as we get into this story, we'll take it slowly and pick up a little speed maybe later on, but keep in mind that Jesus and the Pharisees weren't exactly bosom buddies. Um, they golfed back then, they would not be golfing together. In fact, no group of men was more consistently hostile to Jesus than the Pharisees. Luke will mention Pharisees 28 times in his gospel. And every time he does, they are involved in some kind of hostility or some kind of dispute with, with Jesus. They will eventually, by the way, lead the crowd to chant, crucify him. So Simon, he's inviting Jesus over, not because he's considering becoming a disciple, hardly. Uh, He's inviting Jesus over to find something to use against him. Some kind of evidence to prove that Jesus is not who Jesus says he is. And in this encounter, he's going to find some evidence that he thinks proves that Jesus is an imposter, at least at first, until Jesus traps him. We'll get to that good part in a minute. Before I get too far ahead of the story, Simon's hostility and his unkind attitude toward Jesus is discovered by what's missing in this paragraph. You notice in verse 36 that Jesus effectively goes uh, from the door immediately to reclining at the table. There are some things missing here. In these days, a large home like Simon's would have had a courtyard with rooms opening out into the courtyard, and probably one of those rooms being a dining room if he was wealthy enough. Evening meals were open to the public, although they couldn't eat, but they could be invited to come along and stand along the walls. The doors were always open, and those not invited to eat could wander in and take part in lively conversation, especially when a well-known rabbi or teacher was an invited guest. So when the invited guest entered, however, the home in this culture, the host would place his hand on their shoulder and give him what they would call the kiss of peace, a kiss on both cheeks. This is still being done in many parts of the world, not just the Middle East. As you know, Marcia and I recently traveled to Switzerland. We found the entire church would gather and they would kiss on both cheeks and And then more recently, we traveled to South America and found that the entire church did the same thing there. And I was so impressed with this sweet hospitality, obviously an application of Paul's exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss, right? So I came back here and decided we'd try it on Sunday morning. Remember that? I almost lost my job over that one. Um, 
Couldn't help but think, you know, you think that's a tough assignment. I remember one of our missionaries, the earlys, remember uh, Dwayne and Sue Early, uh, when they were in Russia, he said to me, Stephen, I want you to come visit, but you need to know that when you come, the older men in the church in these villages and towns still greet one another with a kiss. I said, that's no problem. He said, no, it's on the lips. I said, well, what'd you say? Tell me that. Run that one by me again. He said, yeah, the older men are in that tradition. They just, you know, shaggy beards and all. They just smack on the lips. I said, what about the women? No, they don't do that. Just the men. I said, I'm not coming to Russia. (laughs) A handshake works really well, right? And all the people said, all right, we're going to stick with that. But what's missing here, by the way, is a kiss of peace. And, and, Frankly, you might not think anything about it because it's often left out of the narratives. It's just the culture that we assume occurs. A more obvious snub here in Simon's house is that the host would always have a servant ready to ladle cool water over the guest's feet and wash the dust off their feet as they prepare to recline at the table, which they would on the left arm, ready to eat with their right. They're at the table before them. Simon offers none of this to the Lord. One more thing. If the host was financially capable, and Simon would have been financially capable, each guest would have had a small drop of perfume or oil placed on their head, provided a soothing aroma for the weary guests, and it it scented the entire dining room. None of this is offered to Jesus. He is openly, and by the way, he is obviously snubbed by this Pharisee. He's treated with civil, yet it's a cold shoulder kind of disdain. And Jesus, by the way, notices it. He doesn't say anything about it quite yet. Don't read ahead. Now, dinner was for the most part over. Someone else, someone Unwanted, someone uninvited slips into this crowded dining room. Verse 37. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. By the way, that word Luke uses for sinner is a word that refers to someone devoted to sin. Someone who makes sin their business. In other words, this woman is a prostitute. In fact, she's a well-known prostitute. So well-known that Simon and the others know who she is without an introduction. We'll find that out in a, in a moment. But this woman, you need to understand, is, is, is knowingly entering this place. She knows that eyebrows are going to be raised. She knows that tension is you know, going to skyrocket when she shows up. But she comes to this dining room anyway for one reason. She is overwhelmed with love for Jesus Christ. Now, if you put the gospel accounts together, it's significant to understand that just prior to this encounter, Jesus has preached, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, come to me. Believe in me. And I will give you rest. She says, I've got to have that. 
she heard his message. She probably heard other messages as well, but maybe it was that one that struck her. She is weary. She's enslaved. Life is nothing but guilt and sorrow and abandonment and belittling. And One word summed up her life, and it would be the word empty. Might as well have been written on her arms for everyone to see. She comes here ready, though, to declare her belief and her allegiance to Christ and of all places in the home of someone who represented everything she was not. This is the most uninviting home in the city for her. The home of Simon, the lawkeeper, the Pharisee. Look at verse 37. She brings in with her an alabaster if your translation says box, we've got to change that to vial. This is a little vial of perfume. There's a, there's a box brought later by another woman later on in Jesus' ministry. This is a little vial of perfume. It, it would have hung around her neck. It would have been a vital part of her trade so that she would constantly stay perfumed for the next customer. She is giving that up, by the way, for good. She slips in. She stands there, we're told, behind him, verse 38. And then everything kind of falls apart because she begins to cry. Now I want you to try to re-enter this scene. There she, she stands and she begins to weep. She's close enough, she's standing behind Jesus' feet. Her tears splash down on Jesus' dusty, dirty feet. And she wasn't necessarily expecting that, but now what does she do? She doesn't have a towel. So she bends down, kneels there, loosens her long hair, and uses her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. And she's so overwhelmed with sheer reverence and joy. She's kissing his feet as she perfumes them then with her vial of costly perfume. Now, now we know from culture that students or disciples will kiss the hand of their teacher or their master in greeting. If you were an equal, you would kiss the cheek. In this case, what you have happening here is this woman is placing herself as the lowest of society. She is an adoring Grateful, worshiping slave. These are tears of of newfound repentance, as we'll see in a bit. She's overwhelmed with the fact that her empty life is, is at that very moment in the process of being changed by the one she is believing in. The imperfect tense is used, by the way, for all these verbs, so that you see her, she's continuing to weep, she's continuing to wipe his feet with her hair, she's continuing to kiss his feet, and she's continuing to cry all over again. You can imagine dinner just kind of shut down. Nobody's talking. They're all staring. All you hear in that room are the sobs, And the sniffles of a woman whose emptiness is evaporating. Martin Luther, the reformer, commented on this text in saying that tears are water from the heart. I like that. He said, tears are water directly from the heart. 
These are tears of gratitude, bathing the Lord's feet as she sobs uncontrollably. She's lost in godly sorrow. She's lost in wonder. She's lost in genuine love and praise. You know what's happening here? She's the only one in that room who gets who Jesus is. She gets it. I do want to address this for just a moment, especially for those of you that have been raised in church like me. Traditional commentary has viewed her actions as suggestive, even off color. Any woman who would let down her hair in the presence of anyone but her husband was viewed as suggestive, at best, immoral, at, at worst. More recent research and discoveries have shown this is not true in cases of veneration and worship, even in the pagan culture. In fact, one New Testament scholar pointed out in a newly released exegetical commentary, illustrations of pagan culture where women would kneel at the feet of their idol, kissing the statue's feet, and get this, letting down their hair as a symbol of transparent humility and thankful veneration. That's what's happening here. What's happening here in Simon's house is nothing less than spontaneous, unguarded, unplanned, emotional, joyful veneration and thankful worship. Another author said it this way, her hair was her womanly glory. She looses it to wipe the dirt from her Savior's feet. That is, her beauty is now devoted to him and his glory is her first Priority. See, what's happening is she's made her decision. She's effectively saying, I am openly announcing that I am this man's devoted follower. And I don't need this vial of perfume anymore. So I'm giving it to him. Now that's enough for us to close the Bible, go home and say, man... Praise God for his grace. But you pay me too much just to go for 15 minutes, so let's go for 15 more. What do you say? Okay. Simon the Pharisee is livid. He's outraged. He doesn't care about conversions. He doesn't care about empty people. He cares about appearances and traditions. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Notice he's not saying this out loud. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. That she's a sinner. You see, he doesn't even consider the fact she's let her hair down immoral or suggestive. He's bothered that Jesus is letting her touch him. That is, ceremonially defile him. How could you let yourself be ceremonially defiled by being touched by this sinner? That's got him all in a lather. Simon invited Jesus to his home to test him, you know, to check him out, to discover if there's any evidence that Jesus is a pretender. And he's thinking to himself, I got it. If he were truly a prophet of God, he would, he would be able to spot who this sinner is, some prophet he is. Can't wait to tell all the other Pharisees back at the club what I saw. 
At this point, Jesus turns the tables and begins to shake things up. Look at verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> he replied, say it, teacher. Now, you need to understand, and that's the way I read it, because that's, that's what Jesus is saying. Simon, I've, I've got something to say to you. It's one of those. In the Middle East, this phrase, translated here, I have something to say to you, is an expression used to introduce a blunt speech which the hearer would not want to hear. This would be like your boss calling you into his office and saying, I've got something to tell you. And you know it's probably not good news. Right? This is my mother when I was growing up. You remember the woman who didn't spank me as much as I deserved? Yes, we know that saying. Stephen, come down to the kitchen. I have something to tell you. (laughs) Man, this is your wife saying, honey, we need to talk. That doesn't mean you're going to talk. You're not going to say a word. Wait, let's get back to the text here. Verse verse 41. Say it, teacher. Okay, here it comes. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. The other, 50. Now, to help us understand this, one guy owes 500 days of labor, almost two years, if he didn't work the Sabbath. The other guy owes two months of salary. Now, owing somebody two months of your salary is a big deal, isn't it? Owing somebody two years of your salary is really, really steep. Now, the point in this parable is that they're both in a lot of trouble. In fact, verse 42 tells us that both of them are unable to what? Unable to pay. And so what happens? He graciously forgave them both. Now, here's the question for the week. Here's the question from Jesus. Look at it. So which of them will love him more? You can rewrite that. Who will be the most grateful to the one who eliminated their debt? Now Simon doesn't want to commit here to a rather obvious question and an even more obvious application. He knows that he and the prostitute are being compared. He knows in this parable she's the big sinner and he's the little sinner, but they're both bankrupt, evidently, according to the parable. But now he's stuck, but he doesn't want to flunk the quiz in front of his friends. Jesus has asked him a question. So he dodges the question as much as he can, and he simply says in verse 43, I love this, well, I suppose... The one whom he forgave more. I suppose, I'm not going to commit. I know where you're taking me. I suppose the one whom he forgave more, Jesus said, A plus. You've judged correctly. But Jesus is not nearly finished. Here it comes. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he then said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now that question is dripping with holy sarcasm. See her. 
Simon saw her the moment she slipped into the dining room. Simon's been watching her weeping over the feet of Jesus. Simon's thinking, who let her in here? Simon, in fact, knows who she is. Which begs another question or two we do not have time for in this particular study. Verse 44, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. I noticed that, in other words. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven her. And she loved much. But he was forgiven little, as you assume, Simon, loves little. The point Jesus is making here is that if you have a, a little sin or a lot of sin, you're really in the same place as the next guy. You're bankrupt and in desperate need of grace and forgiveness. In the parable and in the eyes of God, prostitution isn't more sinful than pride. Sin is sin. So both Simon and the prostitute in this parable are both bankrupted by sin. They're both in danger of being thrown into debtor's prison, meaning judgment. They're both at the mercy of their lender, meaning God. They are both potentially the recipients of grace as their debts are forgiven, meaning if they will believe in him. One of the convicting parts of this parable that could be missed is not so much the amount of sin, because he levels the playing field, but awareness of sin. She has come into this dining room knowing that her life has been one sinful mountain mess. And Simon's sitting there thinking, I'm a really good guy. And he's not too happy being lumped into this parable with a prostitute. He thinks he has a little sin. Not recognizing that leads to bankruptcy as well. He's not aware of his greater sins. He's blind to them. Now watch what happens in verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, he just kind of forgets everybody in the dining room. He says to her, your sins have been forgiven. Well, that did it. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? This woman had believed in the message of Jesus before she had ever shown up that night. Now Jesus confirms that she is indeed forgiven. And her loving actions were a demonstration that she was now openly following Jesus, her Redeemer. And i, I, I got to tell you, this encounter here wasn't so much for Simon as it was for this anonymous harlot. And Jesus came to Simon's house that night so he could rebuke Simon, certainly, and his religious community. But he really came to, to meet her. And allow her to meet him. He cares about empty people. 
He looks at her and effectively says, look at verse 50, your faith has saved you. Notice he didn't say your perfume saved you. Your tears saved you. Your humility in wiping my feet with your hair saved you. No, your faith in me saved you. And I love this because she's never known anything out there on the street even remotely looking like this. But he says to her, go in, literally, go into peace. I love that. This is the gospel. For everyone who believes in him, that word carved into their body, your body, my body, that word empty, is forever replaced with the word forgiven. Go into peace. And the greater our awareness of how much Jesus forgave us and how much Jesus continues to forgive us, how awful we are the greater our desire to love Him and to praise Him, the greater our willingness to be His slave, the greater our eagerness to lay our glory in the dust and lift up His glory. So never get too far beyond the awareness of your great sinfulness. And the greatness of his grace. Now, for this woman, there's one more treasure for her I want to point out. This packed dinner party at the home of a well known Pharisee, filled with people who are community leaders, religious leaders, maybe a few political leaders, you know, stuck in there too. This dinner party becomes the perfect place for Jesus to effectively announce to the entire city in one fell swoop, this notorious prostitute is from henceforth a new woman. She's forgiven, accepted. So go share that in the club. And her future is peace. I'll never forget in my office some time ago meeting with a woman who had questions about the gospel and she'd been faithfully committed to her religious system. It was merit-based and she was trying her best to earn it all and hope for the best. I shared with her from the scriptures that Jesus took care of all of it for her and offers grace and forgiveness freely that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And I'll never forget it. It dawned on her. I could see it on her face. And her eyes were open to the truth. And she put her hands to her mouth and tears began to stream down her cheeks. And all she kept repeating was, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. It's free. I can't believe it. It's free. She wept. Maybe the reason we don't weep as much as we ought to is because we're not too convinced that Jesus has that much to forgive. So may the Lord increase the awareness of our own depravity 
and the evil of our hearts and the grace and forgiveness that he daily offers. Lenski, the brilliant Greek scholar, ended his commentary on this passage by saying this, For myself, I want no more than what Jesus gave this woman. And then he quoted in Greek what Jesus said, translated, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Now go into peace. Amen. Amen. Let's sing of our love to him. I love you, Lord, and I Wonderful week in him.